Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. NA member FDIC. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fracoso. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Today, I am joined by Winnie Bianima. She's the executive director of UNAIDS, where she spearheads the ongoing battle with HIV. Her plan, working with the United Nations, is to end this 40-year-long epidemic by 2030. But Winnie's work has always extended beyond the AIDS epidemic. For four decades, she's been a global leader on issues around social justice and gender inequality. She served 11 years in the parliament of Uganda, where she created her country's first women's caucus. From politics, she turned to activism as part of the World Bank's Advisory Council on Gender and Development. She spent six years as the executive director at Oxfam International, where she focused on poverty and injustice through advocacy programs, developmental programs, and emergency response. In truth, she's done so much more than what I've just described. But as you'll hear, Winnie has devoted herself to public service in ways I had not exactly heard on this show before. There's a lot in this episode that I had not heard before. Born in the throes of the brutal Idi Amin dictatorship in Uganda, her life is one of great tragedy and triumph. As a result, 
What she shares in this talk is, at times, very painful. Graphic imagery that tells the complicated story of her life. A story of survival, a story of unimaginable warfare, and a story, I think, of improbable but very real hope. You may not have been familiar with Winnie prior to this conversation, but I have a feeling you won't be able to forget her after it. I know I won't. Thanks for listening. Winnie Bianima, thank you for being here. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me on your show. It is an honor to have you. And I have to say, there are so many places to begin. But why don't we start in Ruti, Uganda, which is where you grew up in the late 60s, early 70s. In that period, your country was under the brutal Amin dictatorship. Your father was part of the resistance in and out of jail for refusing to cross over to the ruling party. At home, you had five siblings living in a house without power or running water. And yet of this time, you said, we were victims in a way, but we didn't see ourselves like that. It was a joyous time. It shaped me. What did that joy look like as a child in that period? I was growing up in a time of dictatorship, a brutal dictatorship. But at the same time, I was living in a home of activists who were standing up and resisting. So on the other hand, it was a humble home. Like you said, I had no power, no water in our house. I first saw a television when I was 15 years old. I'd never seen a box. But... I was not poor. Compared to everybody else in our village, we were the better off ones. Right from childhood, I could see that I was more privileged than the other kids I went to school with. They had no shoes. I walked with shoes. I started hiding them in my bag because I didn't want to be different. I had teachers who were Christian missionaries. They made me feel like I was so, so privileged. I wasn't going to go to heaven until I abandoned my privilege. And to this day, I always question why I am privileged, why others have less, why aren't we all equal? So my childhood, I learned that I was luckier than most, that there was no reason whatsoever for me to have more than others, it was just accident and that I needed to be equal, and I needed to share my privilege. How did you know that, that you needed to be equal? Because, one, it is natural. It is actually common sense. When you are a child and you are with other children, you definitely see the difference between yourself with others. So that's one, that when we are young, we actually revolt against inequality. We learn to accept it, to justify it, to live with it as we get older. That's one. Secondly, 
I was also the child of activists, social justice activists. My parents were questioning all the time in our home, were questioning an increasingly uh, civilian dictatorship. They were questioning the violence. My mother was a women's rights activist. She was resisting pulling girl children out of school to marry them off and get bride wealth out of them. They were opposing early marriage, she and her women friends. So social injustices were very much something that was being resisted in my home. That's how I grew up. So do you feel in our nature that from childhood we have a sense of right and wrong and equality and that as we get older, society sort of injects these ideas of inequality in us. Absolutely. You know, one day I was talking with the president of Finland, Taja Halonen. She had been the leader of that country for six, seven years. Her prime minister was a woman. The speaker of their parliament was a woman. And she said to me that a little boy came up to her and asked her and said, Madam President, do you think I could also grow up to become a president like you? There was a little boy growing up in Finland, seeing women leaders, and was now beginning to ask questions, can men lead too? See what I mean? That it's not natural, inequalities are not natural to us, When we find them, when we are young, we question them. But as we get older, the social norms, the society starts helping us to accept them. We don't have to accept inequalities. But you also had two parents that didn't accept inequalities, right? That's true. My parents were resisting. And as part of that resistance, your home often served as refuge for fellow insurgents, a way station for those fleeing this dangerous dictatorship. Our home was full of women, especially, who had issues. They would either have lost their land because some family members on the husband's side had grabbed the land from a widow, or they would have daughters whom they want to keep in school and the father wants to marry off and get uh, bridal wealth. Or it would be someone who has uh, been mistreated by a government official and stolen their property. They were always coming to him to help them get justice. And my question to my dad was, I wanted to know, did he have a job? And he said to me, that was his job because he was a political leader. And he taught me that the most important job in the world is to serve others, that there's no reason for being alive except to serve other people. So when my mother started a business, later on she opened a hardware store, I felt a little embarrassed. I felt as if, oh, mommy's working for a profit. Because I thought the most honorable job was that of serving poor people, women who were victims of oppression. That for me was the first job I knew as a real job and a good job because my dad said, yeah, that's my job. I get up in the morning to help people. That's how I grew up. He would say, this is not about you. This is about other people. 
We are here to serve this community. Absolutely. And as I grew up, I began to realize that even in a business, if you're doing your business well, you're actually serving the community. Because I soon realized that my mother was serving a whole region around my hometown by selling hardware goods to help to construct schools, to construct clinics, to do roads, to do people's houses. She'd give them a little credit when they couldn't pay and get their money later. She'd take their orders and bring them what they need. And I I just soon realized that whether you are in the private sector or in the public sector, whatever you do, you should have a purpose and it should serve humanity. I wonder if you started to find that purpose in 1976, because at that time, you're 17 and beginning to exercise your political voice at university, so much so that you're forced to flee your own country. Which brings me to this one evening where your mother helps you across the Kenyan border. I know we are 40 years removed now, but can you walk me through that night? I can never forget because it changed my life. When I was completing high school, I was feeling very angry. I was an angry girl because the dictatorship was very brutal and particularly attacked women and girls. For example, the dictator Idi Amin, who was an army man with almost no education. He had been trained in the colonial army to kill those who were fighting against colonialism. He was a brutal man. He would wake up one morning and announce on the radio that, today I have banned miniskirts. And then he'd come back after a month and say, today I have banned lipstick. And now I have banned trousers for women. His orders were not even precise. You wouldn't know whether your skirt, which is three inches above the knee or four inches above the knee, is too short and you will be grabbed and found in violation of his law. The soldiers had become completely above the law, they would grab little girls on the street and take them and make them their wives. And you couldn't say a word. You are a parent. You see your child being taken away. You dare not say a word because you'll get killed. So we were all living in terror. And if you are a girl, you had to be even more careful than a boy. So I was angry. I was angry about not being free I was angry at seeing so many fathers of my classmates being killed in in the middle of the term. You would see family members coming to take a classmate away to go to mourn her father whose body was found in a bush somewhere, killed, or sometimes vanished, never to be seen again. So these things had made me an angry girl. When I fled, it was because I was not willing to take any more of that repression. And when my mother took me across the border in the night, it was scary. If we had been caught, the soldiers had instructions and license to shoot anybody 
crossing the border illegally. And I couldn't cross legally because I didn't have proper documents. I was fleeing. So I was crossing in the night, trusting someone to carry my suitcase in the night across the border, no man's land, and hoping that nobody in the system of Idi Amin would catch us in the night. So it was scary, but I knew that I'm leaving because I'm going to go, I'm going to get skills, I'm going to learn something, and I'm going to come and make a difference in the world, in my country. So I I had this determination to go, to acquire knowledge, to become someone useful, to come and make a difference. Were you afraid growing up? There were times when I was a teenager, I would be so frightened at home. There was a time when the dictator was purging his army of all the soldiers from one part of the country. He had overthrown a civilian leader, so he wanted that the army doesn't have anybody from the ethnicity of the leader he had overthrown. So he was killing them, and he would kill them in the barracks, in the army barracks, and he would throw the bodies on farms. My father's farm was one of the places where it was 20 miles from the town, where the bodies were being thrown of these young men. One day, the farmers on my father's farm, the workers, found there one person who hadn't quite died. And they took him away, but he had been shot in the stomach. They they nursed him, they hid him in the farmhouse, they fed him, and they informed my dad in the town that we've got someone who didn't die, but who was thrown here, and we are taking care of him. What should we do? My dad went to the farm and said, okay, We're going to keep him here. We're going to nurse him. It's dangerous. I don't want anyone on my farm to step out of the farm because you might leak the story and we might get killed. But he must be taken care of and I will see how to find him a safe path out of the country. So he lived with on the farm for two weeks. He started getting better. Then one day, an army truck came to the farm, drove right up to the farmhouse, kicked the door in, and shot this poor man dead and took away the body. The report was made and my dad was informed. And we were now waiting for the army to come to pick my dad and kill him because they never wanted anyone to know the atrocities they were committing. And because my father had hidden a soldier they had tried to kill, who had survived, they were going to look for him. So we sat there and my dad said, well, whatever happens, there's no regret here. They never came. But imagine the terror we went through one day, one week, one month waiting that they might come to silence my father for having tried to save a life. It left uh, so many of us, my generation, we, we all know that we have some trauma from that period. But positive things happened. When I fled and went to England and found a peaceful country, 
opportunity to study, libraries, a union to join our societies and express my voice, I was able to channel my anger into real good struggles. So I think I became a real activist when I fled. As you're a young person at the University of Manchester studying aeronautical engineering, you are the first female Ugandan to do so. And you talked in the beginning about finding joy in your childhood. How does someone in their early 20s find joy when coming from those conditions? Honestly, when I arrived in England, I never thought I'd be happy again. I thought I'm going to go to the university, I'm going to study, I'm going to get skills. I will join others to fight the regime of Idi Amin, to oppose it from exile. And one day I'll come back to my country and be happy. I never thought I could ever be happy in England. But I was a believer. My parents were Christian. So I sort of took consolation from going to church and praying. But my biggest consolation came from the Students' Union. There I discovered some joy in organizing. And I have to tell you that university time, things changed. Within one year, I realized that I I was enjoying my life at university. I was enjoying reading. I was being empowered by learning about feminism, reading uh, Simone de Beauvoir, The Second Sex, reading the existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre, reading about revolutions around the world. I discovered liberation theology in Latin America, the Jesuit priests who were supporting liberation struggles there. I read about the Chinese Revolution, and then I joined the anti-apartheid movement at the university, and we were pushing our university, challenging our university to divest from Barclays Bank, which was invested in South Africa. We were doing sit-ins. We were supporting the liberation of what was then called Rhodesia, that then became Zimbabwe in the Pan-African movement. I found causes, but all the time my heart was fighting to go back to Uganda. You're smiling talking about this. Yeah, (laughs) it was good. So many times when people who look like me think of the stories of people outside of America that are born out of struggle and strife and political unrest, there is this idea that there is no joy, that there is no happiness. And what I think you're sharing is important because you're saying, no, 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 look, there is more. You are not defined only by what went wrong. Absolutely. By the time I got to Manchester, I was feeling, one, my parents had taught me I'm I'm equal to boys. I knew that. On the other hand, I was feeling a victim of Idi Amin as a girl. When I got there, 
In Manchester, my heart just drew me to see how women were organizing. So I went to the first group of women I saw, and they were very attractive because they were peace activists. Remember, this was during the Cold War. The East and the West were building up nuclear arms and threatening each other. And now, at my university, a group of women, they were feminists, had organized as part of what was a big European peace movement. And they were going every weekend to a place called Greenham Common. They were protesting. They were saying, we don't want nuclear weapons in our country. We want a peaceful world. We want the Cold War to end and and we want disarmament. I felt so connected to them coming from a country where we didn't have nuclear weapons, but Idi Amin was using small weapons to kill us. So I went with them to Greenham Common. They would talk about the threat of a nuclear war. They were scared of the nuclear war destroying the whole planet. I was more threatened by small arms that were killing us now. So I'll try to tell them that while you are thinking about the possibility of a nuclear war, there's real war, civil war in my country. We are being killed by a brutal dictator. They couldn't engage. They would listen politely and then continue talking about nuclear weapons. I felt so disappointed, so alienated, I left that group of peace movement women. So I I then joined another group. This second group, the women were very angry. And I thought I connected with them because they were as angry as I was. They said they were radical women. So I thought I'm radical too, I'm angry. But they were only talking about bodies. And they kept talking about controlling their own bodies. And then I would start saying that, but you know what? Women in Uganda are poor. African women are so poor. They would keep quiet. And they were not open to talking about issues of poverty of women, biting poverty, of the social norms that discriminate women in other ways. They only wanted to talk about bodily autonomy. And I just couldn't connect with it. So again, I left. I ended up working with socialist feminists. These I found closer to me because they were connecting issues of class, poverty. Although they were talking about industrial class of workers and capitalists, and I was talking more about peasants, people who live off the land and who are in biting poverty and oppressed because of patriarchy and uh, a captured state. But they were closer to me because they were talking both economic issues and patriarchy, the domination of men over women and the militarism of the state. So all these things, as you can see, Sam, I grew University really opened my eyes and released my anger into good, good activism. You went to these groups and they regarded some of the issues you were talking about as sort of theoretical quandaries. And whether it is the pandemic, 
the racial reckoning that has happened in America, it's that many people regard very serious problems as intellectual problems. But I wonder, in your years of activism, how have you found a way to make these theoretical quandaries real human problems? Some. I never start with theory. I start with a real experience, and then I can theorize about it. I feel a bit sad, but it's not unusual that there are some people who begin by theorizing, reading, and then they go to experience. But my life has been one of experiencing and then connecting my experience with those of others through theory. So being at university was exactly that for me, that I came with a real experience that one was first a nice childhood, early years of my parents and my school and being encouraged to be a little girl equal to boys, and then a brutal regime that disrupted all that and I fled. But coming to a university, I was lucky because that was the age when I was turning 19 and I could now connect what's happened to me in Uganda as a girl, as a woman, with the experience of women from other parts of the world. And I could read theory. I could go in the library and be helped by thinkers, like I mentioned Simone de Beauvoir, to understand what patriarchy is, why men have for centuries oppressed women and how that transmits and translates into other systems, economic systems, security systems. I could learn that. I could see that as a colonial subject, I was born in colonial times in Uganda, but by the time I got to understand we're an independent country. But I could connect with my colleagues from Zimbabwe, they were still under colonialism. So I could understand and read and know the impact of colonialism on our countries, even though I didn't quite see it. But I could learn from the experience of my Zimbabwean friends who were telling me what was happening to them and then understand why my country was going through what it was going through as a post-colonial state. So my experience always leads me to connect with others and then to see the common thread and to learn from the thinkers on how to work with others for change. I think many young people today don't connect with what's happening around them because there is no organizing. They are sitting behind a screen maybe and uh, following on social media and what have you, but that kind of organizing can be limited. You can become actually just a spectator, but not an activist, not making real change. I'm not saying it's a general case, but I, I think one needs to have other people with whom you connect and you decide to do something together. Alone you cannot change the world. But I think part of the reason some young people are disillusioned or maybe becoming spectators instead of active participants 
is because they are dissatisfied with the politicians and the system of politics. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And... How are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. And I want to go to something in your life that is real, which is that after university, you join the Armed Rebellion from 1981 to 1985. You do, I believe, two other jobs in between 1994 when you become a member of parliament. Now, I bring this up because there is a moment in your 10 years in parliament that I think speaks to some of the problems that we're having right now today, where a colleague of yours came to the floor of parliament 
and she was supposed to be talking about the budget for roads. But the way she spoke of these issues were untraditional. You see, out of the revolution, which I was a part of, which was a peasant revolution, overthrowing an elite but and civilian dictatorship, we started to grow a local democracy that empowered real people to make decisions for themselves from the local level to the national. We said women would have half the seats in all the councils, the, the legislatures. And at the national level, we had about 25% in the national legislature what you call the Congress in your country. Now, these seats that were reserved for women, women competed against women to fill them. So we had new women who had never been in parliaments, who had not taken the traditional route to parliament of, say, being a lawyer or I don't know what, and then getting elected. They came straight from their kitchens sometimes, from being a nurse or a teacher, the traditional jobs that women did in my country, somewhere just housewives, like I said, straight from their kitchen and looking after their children. So the way they debated issues was different from how, say, a man who's gone to law school debates the issues. So this woman, Ida, like so many others, would watch they wouldn't say much in the parliament because they didn't have the language and the, the culture of the legislature. But when it would be time to debate something so important, they would come out and say what they want for their people. This woman came from a mountainous area on the border with Congo. It was so mountainous, it, it lacked roads, infrastructure. She was contributing to the need for roads in her area. And this is how she put it. She cried on the floor. She said, look, women are dying in the mountains, giving birth because there are no, there's no public transportation to bring them from the mountain down to the hospital because the roads are just not there. We need roads because women are dying. The men burst out laughing at her. Said, what kind of contribution is this to a budget debate? We are not talking about pregnant women. We are talking about money for roads. But <laughs> to me, it really hit me that, no, this can't be right. What she's saying is relevant for roads. A woman needs a road to get to hospital. You don't have to make an argument about roads only when you're talking about transporting goods and shipping exports. Roads are not just for that. They are for women to go to have their babies. There was a light bulb for me. We've got to find a way to make women's concerns respected and counted and budgeted for. We can't just come to the parliament and cry. We must come with evidence, with economic arguments and human rights arguments, but that are coherent and that will be respected by these men in their suits. So we started a whole project of economic literacy for the Women's Caucus. I was the 
I was elected leader of the Women's Caucus. We did a project for two years, giving economic literacy to all the women. Then we did something we called gender budgeting, which was about how to analyze the budget from the perspectives of men and women and making a good argument for why women's needs should also be allocated resources. It all started with us being laughed at for expressing women's needs in the budget in untraditional ways. Public institutions, as well as private sector institutions, were designed by men and tend to reflect the needs of men and the culture of men, and women have to literally force themselves in and change the language and change the priorities. Do you see the language changing in 2021? Yes, a lot. I mean, look, this week, was it, or last week, a few days ago. All the days are are blurred together at this point. Absolutely. I was on my Twitter, and what do I see? Your vice president, Kamala Harris, swearing in Linda Greenfield-Thomas as the next United Nations ambassador, permanent representative of the United States to the United Nations. So seeing two women of African descent, one as a vice president, swearing in another one, that means that language has to change, culture has to change, everything changes because they come with their lived experience. They come with the concerns of people like themselves. So that's what happens when you introduce diversity in any institution. People come as they are with their language, their culture, their way of seeing the world, the issues they have lived with. These become part of the mainstream. So that's the greatness of your country that even when you have your challenges, that diversity keeps growing and diversity strength. We'll be right back. You have brought yourself to each of these issues that you have been fighting for for many years, and I wanted to make sure we we talk about them before we leave, one of which is, is the gender equality that you're talking about. The second, and I think it is important, especially now in the pandemic, this sort of widening income inequality. How are you thinking about this pervasive issue in 2021 and the years ahead. It is widening. It is one of the biggest challenges of our time that the way economies are planned and the way businesses are run, 
just maximize for a few people at the top and cheat everybody else. And the more this happens, the wider these inequalities in income grow, the more that the processes of shaping economies are captured, politics is captured. Because if you're a wealthy man and you have a house and a car and you can take holidays, that's okay. But when you have so much money and you buy a yacht and you buy three planes and you still have a balance, what do you do with it? You then use it to capture power. You channel it into the political process and you buy up the laws, you buy the judiciary, you buy the media, you buy the voice of people. So that's what's happened in many countries now that the widening inequalities result in political capture. Ordinary people have no voice. Interest groups have voice. This is what has been happening. Now, I am in health now. And I see that so directly too, that there are huge inequalities in health and they get wider and wider because the same economic interests, the same huge interests in the pharmaceutical industries, in the healthcare industries, they buy politics. So politics delivers for them. So now you have health systems that are profit-led in poor countries like ours. Imagine, my country is one of the poorest countries in the world, but you see in Africa an attempt to sell health. How do you sell health to somebody who hasn't got food? If you're struggling to put food on the table, if you're a jobless young man, how can you fall sick and go and buy health and have a health insurance. So you see that the solutions being proposed in health are based on models that are being pushed by the same interests that have taken political power. We have in some countries, and I've seen it in my own, where a poor woman goes to hospital to deliver a baby and she's in the hospital for a month or two with her baby, captive, until she pays her bill. Can you imagine that? You have women whose babies die in their arms because they don't have half a dollar to pay at the hospital in order to open a file for them to get treatment. That kind of exclusion. And it's because a model of, well, you know, you need to have people contributing to the health system. It can't be free. The government can't afford. The truth is that the governments can afford if they tax progressively. Those with the biggest profits were to pay their fair share, we would have enough for the health system. But they have already paid money to get the taxes as low as possible to exclude themselves from paying their fair share. So these are the issues why ordinary people don't have the services they need, they don't have the health care they need, they don't have the education of their children, they don't have the roads they need, because those who are rich have taken the power and have excluded themselves out of the tax bracket. And then the tax burden 
is on the poor. You find that in countries, in many countries, we have this indirect system of tax, where you are taxed for everything you consume. So even if you buy a bottle of water, you pay a tax. But if I am so rich and I can take my money and put it in a tax haven, I don't pay tax. <laughs> so you see, the rich don't pay tax, the poor cannot escape the tax bracket. These are the issues. You know, the best healthcare systems that reach everybody came out of crises. In the Second World War, when everything was destroyed in Europe, they built their welfare state and provided health for free. Recently, in the financial crisis, or with HIV, the HIV crisis, AIDS crisis, led to this whole movement and a lot of money brought by the whole world in our joint program to fight AIDS. So you find that crises create solutions, but as soon as we come out of the crisis, sometimes the private interests take over. So some, I am still challenging inequalities and now I'm in the health area. I'm finding that the way health is financed is inequitable. I'm finding that the lack of rights for certain groups of people deny them their health. If you take gay men, gay men are more vulnerable to HIV. But in my country, even if we have the prevention, the condoms, the pre-exposure prophylaxis, all the things that can help them prevent themselves, protect their health, they can't get them because they are called criminals. There's a law that criminalizes them. There's a society that's homophobic that drives them underground. So human rights, inequality of rights, results in equalities in health. So we have to fight for human rights. Girls, girls and Young women are four or five times more at risk of catching HIV because of the way the low value of women and girls in our societies, because sex is forced onto them, because there's sexual violence, because they are discriminated and don't go to school, so they don't have a safe space to grow up in. So ending discrimination, ending criminalization of gay people, of transgender people, of, of sex workers, achieving equality of people in human rights can lead to them having healthy lives. So, so I continue to fight inequality. It is my trademark. Part of equality is finding agency in oneself and, and some of these issues that you're talking about in the healthcare system or uh, the sort of widening gap of income inequality reminds me of this quote from ta Coates. He said back in 2017, In general, people with power don't just hand over the power out of a moral conviction. It is not moral conviction that moves. Do you think that's true? No, power is never given. Power is taken. You have to build your agency to claim your rights. I believe that people are well-meaning, but people don't give up their privilege just like that. 
you build the pressure. And then well-meaning people see the light and come on the right side. But others have to be literally defeated, whether in argument or by a law. South Africa had apartheid, a horrible system of racial discrimination, where the majority had no rights and no equality. Even the church, the main church in their country was preaching that God wanted people to live separately. But when the whole world came to support them and the apartheid was ended, I visited South Africa immediately after that change. And I met so many people and I kept asking my friends, I said, but where are the racists? How come I don't see anybody justifying apartheid? Everybody had changed. Everybody was saying that apartheid was evil. Why? Because it was now illegal. The law had changed, or at least nominally changed people. So you have to organize. You have to, to organize, you have to have agency. You have to claim your rights. And when you have the tools of power like lawmaking, it forces everybody to do the right thing. Some are persuaded because it is right and you can argue your case. Those who are not, the law compels them. So it's about agency, right? It's about collective action. It's about persuading as many people as possible to be on the side of justice. And those who refuse, are overwhelmed by the numbers game and the law. We started this conversation talking about you as a child, where even then you felt it wasn't fair for you to walk to school with shoes on while your classmates walked barefoot. But then, as we grow older, you say that this subconscious tolerance of extreme inequality is like a seed planted deep in us. We start believing that any of these crises we've been talking about, a broken healthcare system, income inequality, we start to believe these problems are, as you say, the inevitable consequences of a prosperous world. You've spent a lifetime working to dismantle that thinking. But how should we try to cope with these conditions of inequality that have been exacerbated by the pandemic? Inequality is wrong, and we should never accept it. And it's not inevitable. It's choices that we make. It's the society we choose to live in. This crisis has shown it. This crisis of COVID has hit the whole world. Where a country is more equal, where you have a health system that is accessible to everybody. You don't have to have a job to access health like you have in some countries where your health is linked to your job, where you have social protection for the elderly, where they are taken care of, the disabled are taken care of, where you have public services that everybody benefits from. These countries have been able to mobilize and protect themselves from COVID. 
where they have huge inequalities, where few people are living in luxury and others struggle, they've struggled to create a public safety net for everybody. So inequality is a choice. I often point to some data here. In your country, the life expectancy of a child in a poor African-American family is the same as that of a child in Libya. War-torn Libya. Can you imagine that? Life expectancy. This is in the richest country in the world. You have a country like Nigeria and you have a country like Bangladesh and Nigeria have about the same income level on average, GDP. But Nigeria has the highest number of children out of school who are unable to go to school because they can't afford it's charged for. More than 10 million. Bangladesh, almost all their children, more than 90% are in school. So it's a choice. They decide that they want to give all their kids education so that they can grow up into adults who can earn a living. So inequality is a result of choices that our governments make. It's the societies we want to live in. Some people in wealth that they can never spend and others in poverty. So that's my answer to your question that inequality, first of all, is not natural. Even as a child, your eyes tell you that, why is this one got this and I don't have it? We should be equal. As you grow older, you realize that the world is fairer if the government makes the choices. Your country gives you opportunity because opportunities have been created. They don't just fall from heaven like rain. So we must choose and we must organize to challenge inequality. I am a fighter against inequality. I'm always mobilizing. And, uh, and some your questions have made me see that you too are a social justice warrior. As we leave, and as a fighter in their 60s, I wanted to present this photo to you. It is, I believe, from your childhood and I'm curious. Oh what my it... God, where did you get that from? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, that's. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, that's me in front of the missionary English woman, this nun, a sister who was my class teacher, and I was a brownie. I think in America you say girls, girls, but can you see the girls around me with no shoes? Yes, these were my classmates. I remember their names very well. Most have died. But the one with a girl guide's hat went on to become a, a peace activist, and she works with grassroots movements, building peace in communities. She's she works for the African Union. The other one with a also girl guide, big girl, she died. She tried to migrate to Norway. She never made it. And all these girls you see, 
Many of them died sadly. They get ill, they have many children and they die young. They didn't live long because we're a poor country, opportunities are not there. This was like the best school in the whole region. You've said that when you see that photo, what you see are girls that had to drop out of school. Yeah. Girls that were much smarter than you. Yes. You said before that millions of girls are like this. They come from poor families. And still now, you are haunted by them in part. I am. That is the sad part of my life that being in my 60s in a global role and I see that most of the people that I grew up with died or are still living in poverty. It's heartbreaking. It seems what's so painful is that it's a lot of people who were not afforded the opportunity to reach their full potential. And I'm wondering, as a woman who has had every job seemingly imaginable, how do you feel about emerging from this situation as you have being a survivor as you are? Honestly, I don't see myself as particularly gifted even. But I see myself as lucky as a survivor. In my community, I was ahead of the other kids. My parents were teachers. My parents were activists. They wouldn't let the dictatorship define us. My mother helped me across a border. I got a scholarship. All these things are partly having had a bit more luck than others being ahead. It's also working hard. I don't take for granted. I know that I must work very hard and prove myself and deliver something. On the one hand, a happy survivor. On the other hand, sad at how many people miss, how many people I know who didn't get their opportunity. What are you thinking about? I'm thinking of my friend Maimuna. We grew up together in the same village and she's still there. She's my best friend on our village. Four children, some grandchildren. She's still a peasant, she still grows her food. I've helped her to put her kids through school, but they haven't escaped poverty because they don't have jobs. She's a women's rights leader in my village. She's respected. She's buried everyone in my village because she's always there. When her house burnt down, the whole village came together and we built another one for her. She's a pillar in our community. She's not a sad woman, but she didn't escape poverty. So what's on my mind is that this challenge of making the world a good place for everyone It's a hard one, but you do your best. You do what you can. Do you feel in your heart, after all the work you have done, that more people in future generations will reach their 
potential? I think so. I think I'm seeing our countries slowly overcoming poverty. But I also have learned through being part of the social justice struggles to find my place, to know that I'm just one person with a, a lifespan that's so many years, not so long, but that these struggles continue for generations. You do your bit and you pass on the baton to others. You're contributing to a historic struggle. And I think young people are going to challenge inequality, are going to demand, and we're going to see some revolutions that equalize. Just like how out of crisis people rebuild, I think this huge inequality is going to cause a reset, and we're going to see young people lead that. I'm optimistic. Well, Winnie, I thank you for your optimism. I thank you for surviving, as you have, and I thank you for sitting with me. Thank you for the opportunity. You're such a deep thinker, and I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Winnie Bianima, please stay safe. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Charlotte Sector, Alinka Bruch, and the good people at UNAIDS. I'd be remiss to not mention that 2021 marks the 40 years since the first report of AIDS and the 25 years of the Joint United Nations program on HIV-AIDS. And although HIV is preventable and treatable, there were still 1.7 million new HIV infections in 2019 and 690,000 people who passed away from AIDS-related causes. So to learn more about how we can beat this epidemic, please visit www.unaids.org. I'd also like to thank Miss Winnie Bianima for sharing her story and her time with us on this show. To learn more about her and her work, visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to hear more conversations in this spirit, I'd recommend our talks with Dr. Cornell West, Representative Ilhan Omar, Jenea Future Khan, Brittany Packnett Cunningham, Dolores Huerta, Gloria Steinem, and Noam Chomsky. You can listen and subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. If you do happen to use Apple or iTunes or whatever they're calling it, leaving us a review on there is still a great way for new listeners to find our program. 
If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop us a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And as always, our show is made possible each week by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editors for today's episode is Kevin Kaur and Joshua Siegel. Our assistant editor is Clarice Guevara. Music by Dylan Peck. Our interns are Caitlin Dryden, Claire Hardwick, Jilly Harold, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Hong, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok, who happens to be celebrating a birthday this Sunday. Without her, I don't know where this show would be. So thank you, Caroline. Thank you to our entire team. It takes a village every week to make this podcast. So I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Amanda Seyfried. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.